That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. What do you do when your fortunes take a turn? What do you do when things don't turn out the way you expected, planned, or wanted? In times of uncertainty or a downturn in your prospects? Such questions are an inescapable part of the human experience, and perhaps especially timely for us in the summer of 2023. I don't so much mean the, the philosophical questions, like how could an all-knowing, good, and powerful God allow such things? Not so much those kind of questions, but more concretely, what do you actually do? How do you respond? What posture do you take? Our gospel text this morning from the very end of John chapter 3 provides us with an example to consider, an example in John the Baptist. And yesterday in the church calendar was the feast of the birth of John the Baptist, or John the Forerunner, John the Baptizer. And up to this point in John's gospel, if you've been around following along as we've been moving through the gospel of John, you'll know that John the Baptist, the Forerunner, the Baptizer, has been a prominent part of the telling of Jesus' story. He's a, a main part of the story thus far, but from here on out, after John chapter 3, he'll begin to recede from view. He never again speaks or appears as a character. He's only referred to a few times by Jesus himself. For all his prominence in these early chapters, right from the beginning of John 1, John the Baptist from here on retreats into obscurity. And it's alluded to there in verse 24, but the other gospel writers tell the story of John's imprisonment and subsequent execution. There's a reason why we don't hear from him anymore. And that is a remarkable change from the, the frenzied heights of the crowds flocking to John, eager to hear what he has to say to be baptized, to that tragedy, that low point. With one lens it's nearly impossible to view the trajectory of John the Baptist's life as anything less than a failure. An explosion into prominence followed by the eclipse by someone else and then a, a descent into tragedy. In our reading, his followers, his disciples, seem, seem to share something of this view. Jesus is baptizing. His disciples are baptizing people in the same vicinity as John and his disciples. An argument arises, and as is so often the case, the argument's not really what it's about. The disciples of John are caught up in an argument, but then they come to John, and they say, actually, what's going on is everyone is going over to Jesus, to this person that you were talking about. John. You're losing your grip on the crowd. You're losing sway. You're losing influence. You're losing followers. You're losing. We can identify with that insecurity, that sense of, of being threatened, of, of things, of ourselves feeling so very tenuous, impending layoffs, economic forces beyond our control, the need to keep pace with a rapidly changing world, relationships, Marked by strife, our place among family and friends uncertain, the future, school decisions and college payments, decisions about job and dating. There used to be a sticker posted 
around here in Austin. Some of you have heard me refer to this before. It might still be out there, but I don't see it as much as I did a few years ago. But it, the sticker simply said, it would be on like lampposts and that sort of thing, and it simply said, live a great story. And on one level, that is a heartening, encouraging message, right? But if I were to name the overarching, driving passion for many people in Austin, it would be connected to that message, not in a life-giving kind of way, but as a pervading, oppressive thing. Accomplish greatness. Make your kids amazing. Have great experiences. Do great things. Go on incredible vacations. Don't you dare be anything less than living a great story. John's response to his disciples suggests he has a different posture toward life. He faces this change in his circumstance and all that that means or might mean with a different lens, a different perspective. My joy is complete. No one can receive anything but that the Father gives it to him. He must become great. I must become less. How does he do that? How does he stand in the face of loss, uncertainty, difficulty, humiliation, living less than a great story? This morning, in the moments we have left, I want to explore what, it me what makes it possible for John the Baptist to take this posture. And I'd like to do that by grouping our thinking around two headings. First, living the great story. And second, more than a cousin. Living the great story and more than a cousin. So first, not living a great story, but living the great story. John is able to take this posture of relinquishment and peace because he knows himself to be living the great story. Now, John the baptizer appears in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament. And it's in the Gospel of Luke that we have an account of his birth to Zechariah, this elderly priest, and to Elizabeth, an older relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in Luke's telling, John's birth is no accident, as many of you will know. Rather, his birth was foretold through this angelic visitation. And he's identified as the forerunner to God's Messiah, the one who will bring God's reign and rule to the people of Israel. The Gospels don't expand on this, but from the earliest age, John, the forerunner, lived with this identity spoken over him. Just after his birth in Luke chapter 1, his father, Zechariah, addresses him like this. And you, child... You will be called prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in forgiveness of their sins. Prophet of the Most High, preparing the way for God, giving knowledge of salvation. And you thought your parents had high expectations. <laughs> and beginning with his birth, but continuing, I imagine, through his upbringing, Elizabeth and Zechariah would have spoken over John, naming his place in salvation history, in God's plan, in the great grand story of God's tender mercies. When he woke up in the morning, did, God little, did, did God's little forerunner have a good night's sleep? At the dinner table, eat your peas. I wouldn't want the prophet of the Most High to go hungry, now would I? Think of the possibilities for discipline. Is that any way the one who will announce forgiveness of sins should act? The point is that John, from an early age, was instructed, this is who you are. 
made with purpose, called and commissioned, appointed by God for a specific role, a specific place in his grand story. And that message forms someone. It roots them. It gives them a security and identity. This is a word of warning. There are going to be several movie references in this sermon. I usually try to mix it up, and I just couldn't this week. There are two kind of contemporary movie references and one much deeper cut, so you can, you can wait on that one. That one will be exciting. But the kids are here, so this is perfect. Our family recently watched the new Spider-Man animated movie. It's very, very incredible. It's fun. And Spider-Man in this is Miles Morales, a Puerto Rican teenager living in Brooklyn. And one of the things I loved about the movie is that there where there are so many stories we have that emphasize the need for the hero to to break free from the constraints of tradition or family in order to really become who they are. A theme for Miles in the movie is the way that his parents love, his place within his family, anchored among his mother and father, his uncles and aunts and cousins who know him and name him, the way that gives him a base, a security, an identity to go do great things to stand with strength even though others might oppose him, to others might say he doesn't belong, that he can't do them. It gives him this rootedness, this base. And the beauty of the Christian story is that you and I are given this base, this security, this identity. First, in the doctrine of creation, whatever your parentage, whatever your background, whatever the circumstances of your conception, your birth, your upbringing, you exist because God ordained it. You are made in his image with all the dignity that confers with intention and with care. And beyond creation, in Christ, you have this base, this security, this identity. The Apostle Paul says, before the foundations of the world, God chose you, looked upon you with desire for himself, for his good purposes in your life, for a part to play in the great story the story of salvation. As I said, the the garden concluded for the year last week, and we have creation care camp coming up this week. But this is so much of what the work that, that is being done in the garden is about. It is not about like learning moral stories. It is about instructing, driving deep into the hearts of our children that they are made in the image of God, called with intention, commissioned with purpose, That we are created in love, we are marked and marred by sin, yes, but we are redeemed in and for glory. And this is the rationale for our spiritual disciplines, our walking with Jesus, praying, reading scripture. We need counter-programming. We need to be reminded of who we are, of the base and security of our lives, in contrast to the stories the world is seeking to tell us. And this base, this base we find in the gospel, in the Christian story, allows you and I to do things that we could not otherwise do. It means you can enter into situations, into circumstances. You can cross an ocean. You can go into the halls of power. You can be present in a situation of extreme brokenness with the knowledge that you have been made with intention, chosen in love. And as Father Jonathan shared last week, sent in power. You have confidence. You have rootedness. You have a part to play. And no downturn in your circumstances, your prospects, no extended period of unemployment, no economic uncertainty, no relational breakup or breakdown can call that into question. 
You are not defined by those realities, by your purchasing power, by the crowd around you, by the credentials you may or may not have. So you can be open-handed with such things as John the Baptist is here. That's what we see him doing. When his disciples around him are losing their heads, he holds on to the plot and his place within it. He knows who he is and that his place and part in the story are secure. So his prominence, his success, his very life do not need to be grasped and held on to. These things, good as they might be, are not his base and security. They are not defining, so they don't need to be held onto or fought over. Now, I made that comment earlier about parental expectations, high expectations from our parents. And there's a world, and maybe you've experienced this, in which the sense of identity and the place that we receive from our parents, from those around us, is not actually securing, not enlivening, but is itself oppressive. This is a second movie reference, but Shannon and I recently watched this movie, You Hurt My Feelings. Spider-Man was with the kids. This was like adult movie. It was too boring for the kids, I imagine, too talky. But in the movie, there's this scene where this grown child speaks to their parents about how growing up, their mom and dad were always going on and on about how special they were, how great they were at everything they did, how talented, intelligent, and capable. And now as an adult, they are miserable. In the scene, they are angry. They don't know who they are. They don't know what messages about themselves they can trust. And they feel this pervading pressure to live up to all these messages they have received. So they can't just write their first play, it has to be a masterpiece, a genius level work. The reason that character, that son, is miserable is because they've been formed, instructed to occupy a place in the story they were not made for. They were the center of their parents' world, and so they grew up thinking of themselves as the center of things, the center of the story of their own lives. And that mistake is the root of so much misery. Along with his part in the great story, what John the baptizer knows in John 3 is that he is not the center. He's not made to occupy the center of the frame. And that knowledge, that awareness, allows him to sustain this posture of relinquishment and peace. It gives him freedom to live even as circumstances change. He's a part of the great story, but he's not the central figure, not the hero, not the star. Someone else is. And that relates to our second heading, more than a cousin. In the Gospel of Luke, Elizabeth, John's mother, is only described as a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Their relationship is not defined. It's the only mention of any relationship between John and Jesus in the Bible. In Christian tradition, John the Baptist and Jesus have been known as cousins, perhaps second cousins. Growing up as a relative of Jesus of similar age, a few months older, must have been a remarkable experience. And whatever that experience was like, it seems that something happened to John, such that he became convinced of Jesus' centrality and preeminence. And that conviction of Jesus' remarkable personhood and place in the story, in the world, 
relativized everything else in John's life. Everything else paled in comparison to that. Think about the first time we see John the Baptist introduce Jesus in the Gospel of John. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not, look, it's my cousin. Or even, behold, the Lamb of God, he's my cousin, you know. (laughs) No, John is so thoroughly captivated, convinced of Jesus' preeminence. Here in John 3, his emphasis is all about how Jesus is from above. He's distinct, he's unique, so he's able to disclose the truth about God and heavenly things in a way that no other human teacher, no other solely human teacher, John among them, can do. And the term that that John uses to describe himself here, of the earth, is distinct from the word translated elsewhere as world, like John 3.16, God so loved the world. The word earth here simply refers to the limitations we have as human beings, the limitations as created beings. And so John here, in proclaiming Jesus, is proclaiming his own human limitations in contrast to the surpassing qualification that Jesus has as one born from above, as one who stands over and above every other teacher without rival. In the great story, in which John has an integral part to play, into which you and I have been so graciously called into, Jesus has primacy of place. He is the central figure, the protagonist, the hero. As the one from above, the the word become flesh, he only is able to occupy this space, this place, to stand in central position. He must become great. Attention and focus must be directed toward him. That John understands this means he's able to withstand this change in his circumstances, a downturn, an uncertainty, even the loss of his life. If we see ourselves as the center of our lives, as the protagonist, the hero, we set ourselves up for misery. Because everyone knows deep down their own lack, their own limitations, their own flaws and failures. We're aware of them. And so in that place, Our career success, our financial security, our reputation among others, our desirability, the potential and promise of our children, these good things become elements that we have to cling to in order to buttress our sense of self. They become the proof we seize upon that we are okay, we're the central figure, the hero, the star. And that means we become enslaved to circumstances. We cannot take on John's posture here. He is free in a way that we cannot be if we see ourselves as the center of the stories. You and I in Christ have been drawn into God's story of salvation, the great, defining, central story of all that there is. And at the center of that story is the person of Jesus. He and he alone is the hero and central figure, the one upon whom all things hinge. And our part, like John the forerunner, is to point to him, to testify to him, God's anointed, the singular figure. And as we take that place, that posture, as we play our role, we experience a freedom, a joy of being caught up in this glorious story of all that God is doing, joyfully free, able to stand amid the various changes and chances of life. 
And I want to be clear here. We have the Old Testament reading. We have our psalm, the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah. These are, this is language of lament we read in that passage. So I'm not saying that you should be detached from the circumstances of your life in such a way that you're like, I don't care. I don't feel sad about things going wrong or things going badly. But there is a difference between being able to name that lament before the Lord and remaining secure in our identity as he, as he names us, as he calls us to be, than like coming to pieces, falling apart in and of ourselves, right? We are held fast even in our lament, even in our sadness. This is the third and final movie reference. It's, it's the deeper cut. John Cazell was a legendary actor. Prior to his untimely death at the age of 42, he acted in only five movies. And those five movies were each nominated for the Best Picture Oscar in the 1970s. And those five movies were The Conversation by Francis Ford Coppola, The Deer Hunter, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. And Cazell is celebrated as one of the greatest actors of his generation. This is just an aside. When he was passed away, he was dating Meryl Streep. <laughs> Yet in none of those films was he the star, was he the central figure. And had his life continued, he probably never would have become the star. That just wasn't who he was. He was a supporting player a remarkable character actor, celebrated for his contribution, and caught up, featured, a featured participant in these great and celebrated stories. That is the part that you and I are called to play. And it's a really good part. It's not the central figure, but it is the role for which you and I were made. And it's the role in which you and I find freedom, find abundant life, find joy supporting, pointing with John to Jesus, to the one who's from above, working for his increase, for his name to be made great. This church, and I would dare say most every church, exists because people have taken on the posture of John the Baptist we see in John chapter 3. In their acts of generosity, in their acts of service, however great, however small, in their sacrifice, Dozens, maybe hundreds of individuals have sought and are seeking to make great the cause of Christ here at Church of the Cross, over and above themselves, their own priorities, putting him at the center. And in so doing, they are following in the footsteps of John the Baptist, disregarding their own fame, their own comfort and pleasure, giving of themselves for Christ and God's great story, such that their joy the fullness of their joy is bound up in what God is doing in Jesus and not in their next vacation, promotion, or the accolades they might receive. And what I want to declare to you today is that there is joy, lasting joy in doing that, in pointing away from ourselves, in prioritizing the cause of Christ because such is his unique greatness his singular majesty, his one-of-a-kind goodness. He is the bridegroom for whom all things wait, and he will have his satisfaction. Spoiler alert, the great story ends with a marriage. Earth and heaven will be one. He will be married to the bride, the church, and the joy of those who set his purposes, his greatness at the center of their lives will see their joy filled to completion, filled to overflowing.
John, the Baptist, the forerunner, the baptizer, shows us this in his example. But what I want you to take away is not a generic principle, like it's better to give than to receive, or, or it's remarkable how much you can do when no one wants to get the credit, true as those statements might be. But what I want you to take away concretely is the sheer goodness and supremacy of Jesus Christ. That he alone is singularly from above. That faith in him alone is what results in this life of a different order, eternal life. I can imagine, like I said, John growing up with Jesus, growing into this conviction that his cousin was something more. But that is not a conviction that is arrived at simply through abstract thought, but rather from visceral, experiential contact. You have a quote on the front of your bulletin. It's long. I'm not going to read it. From the Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth from early in the 20th century. And Forsyth was this brilliant theologian. And that quote is from a larger section where Forsyth argues that his allegiance to Jesus, his commitment to Christ, is the result not of, of abstract thought, not of, of simply hearing from God, but is a result of an invasion into his being by the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. He was overwhelmed, won over, transformed, he says, by the greatness of Jesus in this tactile, visceral, experiential way. And such an awareness is ultimately what sustains the posture that John exemplifies. Such an experiential awareness of the goodness, the greatness of Jesus is on offer to you today at this table in our worship together, in the quietness of your life, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the one in whom we believe to have eternal life. Behold him, the bridegroom, who makes our joy complete. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let me pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, we come to you as your people. We come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come hungry. We come longing, O oh Lord, to be revived in a sense of your goodness and your greatness. Would you, in the quiet of this moment, in the coming moments as we approach this table, as we sing of your excellencies, confirm in our hearts in a new and deeper, more complete way the truth of who you are, the bridegroom, the one for whom we are waiting, the one who satisfies our longings, the one who is from above, who brings eternal life. Reveal yourself in your greatness and your glory among us, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.